my sponsor would give me these tasks that would busy me enough that I couldn't get in trouble. And a lot of it served the purpose of being of service to other people. Mm -hmm. So it would be like, instead of sitting there complaining about your mom, why don't you go unload her dishwasher? And I would, and then she'd hang up on me usually. (laughs) So I couldn't protest against this. So like, you know, even through gritted teeth and clenched fists, I'm like doing this service work. Like, I don't want to unload this dishwasher. I didn't make any of these dishes dirty, you know, or like taking the trash out on my way for a meeting. Um, And then she would have me call one of her other sponsees. I found out much later on that like she always did call her sponsees back, but she would tell me like, hey, I don't have time to call back um, Emily today. So can you call your sister and check on her and make sure that she's okay? So if she asked me to do something, I felt like I had to. So then I would call this other person. (laughs) She's making you make calls. (laughs) And then Tina had already spoken to him and told him, like, don't let her talk about herself. So then I'm on the phone listening to this other person talk about themselves. I'm like, when am I going to get a word in? But all of these things that she kind of disguised as a way for me to work towards recovery without actually making the choice to work towards recovery. I I heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collected voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I'm Alice, an alcoholic in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Alice. Hey, Don. You been to any good meetings lately? (laughs) I've actually been to some really great meetings. I do a lot of online meetings, and I have some that I love. You know, I had the best time this past week because I was able to give my sponsee 16 year chip. It was his anniversary. I I got to the meeting late because (laughs) I was, (laughs) I was at a business, an AA district meeting. It ran over. So I rushed over there and I only got the last half of the meeting. And there was somebody who was brand new. Well, who was returning. He picked a start over chip up. So very powerful for me to be able to give my sponsee at the end of the meeting, this chip who I remember when he came in 16 years ago and he probably has 15 start over chips. Yeah. And to be able to share that. And then he was able to share how this thing works and what he wasn't doing, picking up all those chips was the whole program. He just didn't want to do it. He was fighting it and not doing everything. I saw the daily quote, subscribe to it to get it at aagrapevine.org. And today's quote was, (laughs) this is from William, you might've heard of him, William Duncan Silkworth. Silky. The, the beloved medical friend of Alcoholics Anonymous. He, uh, he was the one who's responsible for Bill getting sober and at the very beginning. He helped him yeah. so much. Well, here's a quote from him today. The alcoholic slip is not a symptom of a psychotic condition. There's nothing screwy about it at all. <laughs> the patient simply didn't follow directions. I love that. That that is actually a summary of the doctor's opinion that's found in the book. Yeah. Follow the directions. When did that come out? 1947. You can find that in Best of the Grapevine, Volume 1, Slips in Human Nature. But uh, it's just if you follow the directions, you'll get the results. I mean, if you follow the directions, you're not at a meeting complaining about the treachery of it all, you know? Like what a blessing. The drudgery. 
I mean, it's, it's not what it is, yeah. right? Because yeah. it, it really is joy and happiness and freedom if, you, if you're following directions. Now, wait a minute. But there are times where life is really rough and really bad. <laughs> you get through it. While this is true, Don, here's my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I came in um, May 21st, 1987. And it took me a long time to sort of figure this out and to be able to really put it into practice. But it says it right on the top of page 100 in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That first full paragraph, the last sentence says, we get to live presently in a new and wonderful world, no matter what our present circumstance is. And the truth is that I'm going to have health conditions. People that I care about are going to get sick and die. Bad things might happen to me. Mm. But I get these tools when I follow directions that I'm not complaining. I'm not whining. I'm not the wet blanket. I'm able to see that nothing really happens to me. Everything happens for me. There's a gift in all of it. There's joy and freedom no matter what. Alice, I like the way that you can just off the top of your head <laughs> pull out these quotes on page one. You're a big book thumper. I think I'm a thumper. That's the truth. <laughs> and it's not a pejorative around here. I'm a thumper. Alice, what's on the podcast today? Don, today we're going to be talking to Sloan B. from Wisconsin, who I've had the honor and pleasure of meeting. I'm really excited to have some time with Sloan today. Oh, I've heard Sloan before, too, and I can't wait to talk to her. Hey, Alice, how can I support the Grapevine podcast? Since the grapevine is self-supporting, we don't sell ad space in our magazines, our website, or even the podcast. Grapevine doesn't even accept contributions from AA members. Wait, what? If you want to support this podcast, visit aagrapevine.org and click on store or subscribe in the new Grapevine app. I am Sloan. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is November 1st, 2011. I'm coming to you from Waukesha, Wisconsin. It's roughly an hour north of Chicago, southeastern part of the state, Area 75, District 32, if you want to know the specific. All right. Get into the service nerd aspect there. Yes, it does. <laughs> it's there. It's always there. Do you have a service position? Currently, I serve on Wisconsin's Conference for Young People and AA. I serve on their advisory board. I'm nine years into a four-year commitment there because of COVID and gotcha. most of the Area 75 treatment chair. I'm the grapevine rep at my home group for at least one more week. I give my last grapevine report next week. And I'm the graphics and merchandise chair for uh, Rafty Paw, which is a young people's conference in the north woods of Wisconsin with whitewater rafting and AA speakers and AA panels and all kinds of fun stuff in the middle of the woods. Rafty Paw. Rafty Paw is what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. If you Google us, you'll find our website and then you can pre-register for the conference. And I will personally come pick you up from the airport if you fly in. <laughs> Everyone should have that experience. I, I, I swear by this. Something about Rafty Paw, it'll change you wow. forever. That's incredible. So Sloan, what was going on in, in 2011 inside of you that you felt like you needed to come to AA and surrender? Yeah, 
I wish I'd truly surrendered in 2011. Mm. The first three years of my sobriety, I worked big zero steps, really more miserable at three years sober than I was with one day of sobriety. But I found Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 15. At that point, it was kind of the last house on the block. Like I always like to remind people when I see my sponsees passing judgments on newcomers or something like that, that um, no one ever comes to AA after like one bad night of drinking. You know, this is usually we've exhausted all other efforts at attempting to do this ourselves. And I was probably as confused, if not more confused than the old timers in my meetings about how at 15, all of my efforts to fix, manage and control my drinking were just useless. I was on my fourth detox. It was April of 2010. One of the nurses there put a 12 and 12, a 12 steps and 12 traditions book on my bed. And he said, you can keep coming to detox and keep going to these group therapy sessions and filling out these worksheets and getting on medications. But unless you're willing to change something in you, nothing's going to change. And I paged through the 12 and 12 and the word sponsor kept jumping out at me. The only thing I could attach the word sponsor to was NASCAR racing mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> like sponsorships with like Wheaties and like Duracell batteries. <laughs> and I started thinking about like, okay, so those companies pay the driver to drive these cars. So a sponsor is going to pay me to stay sober. And in my 15 year old brain, like this genuinely is what I thought was going on in AA. <laughs> and so it became this like get rich quick scheme in my <laughs> adolescent untreated alcoholic brain and um we have all these words that can mean different things outside of aa we have jargon that's specific to aa yeah i do try to keep that in mind with sponsorship that there was a time in my life where i was none the wiser about any of this and how would i explain these steps to someone who knew not a single thing about alcoholics anonymous because that was me so You were talking about where that place inside, that three years that you hadn't let go or you hadn't surrendered. What is that place? How how does one find that? Well, and so when I found AA at 15 isn't when I got sober. I was doing the like 30, 60, 90 day dance, chronic relapser type, as we call them sometimes. And when I finally sobered up and got the sobriety that I have now, I had this awareness that things could be worse. But for the first time, I had this like overwhelming feeling like I just didn't want them to get worse. Today, I kind of believe it to be some kind of spiritual experience of sorts, because it didn't feel like a thought that came from me. But I even with that in mind, like I was willing to go to any lengths to stay sober, I was not willing to go to any lengths to treat my alcoholism, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Which is why those first three years, I had no interest in doing any version of like self-reflection, finding God. I used to, because I didn't want to pray myself, I would ask people at my home group, like, hey, my sponsor said I should pray for patients. Can you ask your God to give me <laughs> patients? And I'd ask other people to pray for me because I didn't want to pray. Yeah. I'll and, pay um, you. I'll be your sponsor. You, <laughs> <laughs> how did it work to, to not do it and ask other people to do it? So I, I always have to keep in mind that I was 16 and so many of the people that I was going to meetings with or doing fellowship or on these service committees with were in their 20s. And my sponsor had around 25 years. So most of the people that I was around, like they just gave me so much grace. And no matter how 
feral and like ugly my defects of character would present themselves in meetings. They just met me right where I was at and loved me anyways and never made me feel like I wasn't welcome. Mm -hmm. The thing was like when I got sober at 16, finally, like I, I knew that my reaction to alcohol was never even close to normal, but I wasn't convinced that my life was unmanageable, basically like the second half of the first step. You know, I wasn't convinced that I couldn't manage life on my own. So I'm certainly not in the business of like selling someone the solution in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, like I believe that there's a level of misery that's required in order to have the willingness to do these steps because, you know, what does it say in the book? Like simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid, right. you know, and, and so in, they're simple, sure, but the, it's painstaking work. You have to have that gift of desperation. And I don't think I was quite desperate enough to level my pride and admit that I'm just like the rest of you. But that's why I try to be willing to be as vulnerable and as open and transparent as possible about my experience, because it serves as like a warning to somebody But that's else. what we do in AA is share our stories <laughs> and share how I'm living now and how it's better than it used to be. And it's like, mm -hmm. come along with me if you want to. Yeah. And I think a mm -hmm. person on the outside would say, oh, you know, maybe AA doesn't work. You were here for three years and you were miserable and then you were in a facility. And, and what I hear you saying is I didn't follow the directions. I didn't do the work that was required yeah. to, to be a member, an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. Like, I, I like to say that even these days, you know, I, I usually, because of my connectedness to a higher power, like I have a gut instinct about how God wants me to show up in a certain situation or in a relationship it looks like a crossroads, right? Like, here's what God wants me to do. God wants me to, you know, be a good daughter to my mom, even if she's not a good mom to me, like, you know, pick up the phone when a newcomer is calling me, even if my favorite TV shows on or like, whatever. Yes. Um, this is what God wants me to do. What I want to do is not answer this phone call, tell my mom about herself and arguably take her inventory. Um, <laughs> yes. I want to not go to the meeting tonight because I mean, I was facing this last night. I was laying in this jacuzzi tub and I'm like, I'm not going to that fellowship <laughs> event. Like, why would I get out of this bathtub, <laughs> get dressed and go to this event when I'm living the dream right now? Right. And then it's like that voice in the back of my head of like, well, you told your sponsors to go. You're the chair of this committee. You know, you know how God wants you to show up. And, and so it looks like this very deliberate choice. I think the way that you're talking about the challenge of being young in Alcoholics Anonymous has two sides to it, right? One side is I want to do stuff a regular teenager does, right? But I want to point out that you can be 50 in Alcoholics Anonymous and want to do what you want to do and not want to do the exactly. work, right? So I think that that's regardless of age, right? But I think there mm -hmm. is this deeper thing when, when, you, when you're younger, potentially. But, but the other thing is that you then came in and had access to this thing that a lot of folks in Alcoholics Anonymous don't fully understand, which is Ikipa. So would you talk mm -hmm. about Ikipa for folks and tell them what it is? Yeah. When I first came in when I was 15, they were talking about the dance that was going on that weekend. And I went into this dance and it was all these young people, like the music and the lights. And it was so intoxicating to someone who had been looking for this camaraderie at the bottom of a bottle and being incapable of finding it there. And suddenly I found it here in AA. And so the fellowship, young people in Alcoholics Anonymous and those conferences and the committees and the events that they put on leading up to the conference make 
the fellowship looks so appealing and so attractive um, that they there there really is no need to promote it, right? Because all you have to do is take a look in the window and something about it just draws you in. And that was my experience. You said it was intoxicating. Literally, it was literally I mean, that's what we're looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And especially, I, I mean, I couldn't be, like it talks about in A Vision for You, like I couldn't be resigned to these like boring, even if, even if getting sober meant that I was going to spend a, a Friday night in a meeting and going to a diner afterwards, even that like wasn't going to be enough for me. Like I loved that we had these dances and scavenger hunts and even like board game nights, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Wisconsin was bidding for the international conference and it was in New York City that year in 2010. It was at the Marriott that's right in Times Square. Square. Like literally, yeah, you'd like walk out and the red stairs are right <laughs> there. And I'd never been to New York City. Yeah. And I'm at some point, Tina and a couple of other people from my home group just showed up at my mom's house and convinced her like, look, we need you to give us your daughter for the weekend, buy her a plane ticket to New York City. <laughs> And, you know, put her on this plane and we'll take care of her and we'll bring her back. And I don't know. <laughs> I mean, God must have been working through her that day because I when I look at it objectively, like a bunch of strangers that my mom didn't know showed up at my house and said, give us your daughter, your 15 year old yeah. daughter, who's been killing herself for the last five years. Give her to us for a weekend across the country. In New York City. And she's going to have a, yeah, she's gonna have a good time. And my mom's like, sign me up, you know, and buys me the ticket and. And, uh, we can't do anything with her. <laughs> well, I, that's what I think her mindset was. Like, there's no way that they can do more harm than she's already done to herself, yeah. you know? And and she was kind of at her wit's end of like, I don't know, we paid tens of thousands of dollars for all these treatments and somehow this free group yeah. is helping her. Yes. And so I went out there and, and I remember walking into the Saturday night meeting and it was in this <gasps> enormous ballroom, just like you guys described on your podcast about San Francisco. That was episode 12, season five. And like this room that just like feels like it goes on forever. And I turned around and looked behind me and there were, you know, balconies full of people and they're like waving their state flags and their country flags and there's music. And and I remember sitting there and like taking it in and thinking like everyone in this room is sober. And it blew my mind because no one. They're sober and they're having a ball. Yeah. And it was like the most magical thing I'd ever seen in my life. Sloan, what happened to you? How did you come to find a higher power? What is that for you? Yeah. Um, so at the, I had just celebrated three years sober and I experienced something that really threw me into this tailspin of reliving a lot of trauma that I had from prior to getting sober um, from my childhood and stuff like that. And, and I'm really grateful that the way it was phrased to me from my sponsor was that like a fourth step, as much as it can help us to let go of the power that something has over me, a fourth step isn't a cure to PTSD. A fourth step is to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Yeah. And in making that inventory and taking a look at mistakes that I've made and defects of character that I possess none of that process helps to relieve true clinical trauma living in the bedevilments that they talk about on page 52 and we agnostics where it talks about like a prey to misery and depression couldn't make a living the feeling of uselessness can't seem to be of real help to other people like that's they're describing the way that we're living when we're drinking 
But I would argue that that's exactly where I find myself every time that I'm cut off from my higher power. And so in this spiritually sick state for three years, like what it looked like was um, my alcoholism manifesting in all of these very obscure ways because alcoholism as a disease demands to be treated. So if I'm not treating it with a bottle and I'm not treating it with the solution I find in the steps, it's going to try and treat itself somewhere else. So I got blacklisted from all the men's halfway houses in southeastern Wisconsin because I was acting out in a way that you can imagine require what you have to do to get blacklisted from a bunch of. Oh yeah. You got to work hard at as that. a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I put another, I, yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, got blacklisted from all these halfway houses cause I was acting on in that way. The casino by my house, um, this native American casino, they have, you can play bingo if you're 18 and up. So I was going to bingo every single night spending a God awful amount of money on bingo. Mm. Also like trying to, get some kind of power from collecting service positions in AA. Um, so I was like secretary of like seven different groups. I mean, it was absolutely, if you looked at my life objectively, it was bizarre because all of it was just this like lack of power and me grasping for straws to try and get power from taking it from you. Right. And all of that coupled with the trauma that I just experienced led me to a place where um, shortly after the new year in 2015, my mom ended up walking in on me um, attempting suicide because the obsession to drink had been removed from me somewhere. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that that's like the grace and mercy of a higher power that I didn't believe in at the time. But when the obsession to drink has been removed from you, but you can't imagine going on life the way that you've been living, the only out that I could really imagine was taking my own life. Yep. And my mom, through some kind of uh, divine intervention, woke up in the middle of the night and came into my room and saw me with a gun in my mouth. And I then uh, spent the next year and a half in a mental hospital mm -hmm. trying to treat this thing that AA can't fix. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, Tina would come visit me two, three times a week, every single week, because she told me that while I'm working on this thing that AA can't fix, I can't continue to allow my alcoholism to fall right. on the wayside. Wow. So she recognized it as like, this is this is like a true miserable bottom. Like now I have this willingness. Yep. And so we went through the steps page by page, line by line. And, and so in a funny way, I ended up having this spiritual experience in, it's like some tagline for a sitcom. Like I found God in, in the psych ward, right. you know, because right. she was visiting me one day and she said, you know, I was like full of self-pity and I was like, uh, I can't believe this is happening to me. I'm three years sober. I'm working God's will. Like, why am I stuck in this place? And she said, you, Sloan, you can't tell me that you're working God's will when you're here with all these people who are still wet behind the ears and you're unwilling to carry the message that was so freely given to you out to them. Mm. And what she was talking about was that adult mental health and adult detox were on the same unit. Yep. I was on the firing lines of AA. I was surrounded by people who were actively detoxing from alcohol and I didn't want to be around them or talk to them because I'm sober. I don't need you. And in that moment when she said that, it reminded me of like what Bill talks about in his story about the icy intellectual mountain that I lived and shivered behind for years melted before my oh. eyes, you know, like in a very dramatic way. Oh. And I had this like, aha moment of like, I've been searching for God as if God were like a lost dog right. or something. When at the very core of spirituality is just this unselfishness and self-sacrifice, like regardless of what it costs me, I'm going to do something to benefit you, like having a true servant's heart and that 
as long as I'm carrying this message to the next alcoholic, it doesn't matter what God is or isn't. I'm going to find a power greater than myself in doing that. And so after that, I started talking to all these people who are detoxing, who had one or two or three days sober and telling them about my experience in AA, giving them phone numbers for my home group members. I had some of my home group members come like pick them up when they were discharging because they had nowhere to go. We got them. I was basically doing like district and area treatment work. But like on the inside, you know what I mean? Like yeah. an undercover. Yeah, agent, you've you know? gone inside the system. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, and uh, some of them are still sober today. Wow. And that's how I know that like when I do the work necessary to move me out of the way and let God speak through me, that miracles do happen because they're still sober. Yeah. The solution is the same that like Bill describes about he would walk into his old hospital and feel like lifted out of his seat. seat. That's right. Gets me out of myself. Yep. Sloan, what a beautiful conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining us. I know that everybody in the sound of your voice is going to really get a powerful message from you. Thank you so, so much. I mean, thank you guys for having me. I mean, Don, I've been listening to the podcast and I, I've, I've, as Grapevine rep, I've been plugging the podcast <laughs> as well as the new Grapevine app. And it's really been an honor and a privilege to come visit you guys today. Thank you, Sloan. Folks, we truly had a meeting after the meeting with Sloan. We got into a deep conversation about using the steps to heal from the most difficult situations. Keep listening after the closing music to hear more of our conversation. Hey, Don, what are you playing with on your phone? We're supposed to be recording a podcast here. Sorry, Sam. I was just checking my spiritual fitness in the new Grapevine app. Oh, the daily spiritual maintenance checklist? Well, are you fit? Yep, says so here. And look, there's a daily quote and a sobriety calculator. And you can read the latest issue and all of the past issues all the way back to 1944. And you can have the app read the magazine to you out loud as a playlist. It's the monthly magazine in print and audio. Right in your pocket. The Grapevine and Lavinia apps are now available for both iOS and Android phones. To get yours, go to the App Store on your phone. Sam, can you get that? It's the listener feedback phone. 212-870-3418. Yeah, hang on, I'll get it. Yellow. Hi folks, it's Jerry calling from Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. The comment was offered by a person attending a meeting when it came to dealing with the Christmas season. They were grateful for recovery and the change in their life, which manifested itself when they realized for the first time that there was not, in fact, only one correct way to decorate a Christmas tree. And it seemed to capture so much about what Christmas presents as a challenge for so many with expectations and so on. Whenever it was shared a couple of times at different meetings, it seemed to elicit a good chuckle from the people at the meeting. So I thought I'd pass it along. Thanks for what you do. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jerry. I heard somebody share in a meeting recently about the holidays coming that it felt like it was a holiday hurricane season about to believe with (laughs) all of this expectation swirling around and everything. And Jerry, that's exactly it. There's if I let go of it all, I can enjoy myself. But 
what I thought of was old timer I heard say to his sponsee one time at the back of the meeting near the coffee pot. He just turned to him. He's, the guy was complaining about something, and his sponsor said, "Why don't you try not having a wave for a while?" <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought that was said to you, Don. No, that wasn't me. <laughs> I, I, well, I do have a way. <laughs> <laughs> it should have been said to me. Well, you know what instantly came to mind when I was hearing Jerry say that, and Jerry, thank you so much, was that person has done some general service. <laughs> because that's where I learned that there's more than one way. Yep. I mean, when, when I was listening to Jerry, and yes, thank you, Jerry. You know, I thought about what it's like to be new. And you get here and it's Christmas, and maybe it's your first Christmas. Mm. You know, I got here and I was just drunk for all the holidays. And so this notion of how am I going to stay sober? Well, there's more than one way to do that, right? Some people do marathons. Some people go to friends' homes. Like I got a whole new family when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's certainly more than one way. Thanks, Jerry. Hi, Don and Sam. This is Lisa, an alcoholic from South Jersey, and you were recently talking about the different types of meetings on the podcast. Well, I had to chuckle because when I first got sober, I was living in Philadelphia, and there was a meeting in my neighborhood called Meditation on the Steps. Well, the meeting was at a church, and there were a set of steps to get into the church, and I thought that the alcoholics sat in front of the church on the steps and meditated, and I thought there is no way I am going to be out in public at an AA meeting meditating. <laughs> so I just thought well, that was funny, and maybe somebody else can um, appreciate that. Have a good day. Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, that is good. <laughs> Because you know what? We come in and we we don't know what we don't know, right? And that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Meditation on the steps. I'm not sitting on the steps in front of everybody and meditating. <laughs> I might have passed out on the steps in front of everybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> now I've got dignity. <laughs> oh, wow. I love that. And I love when we share those foibles from our early days, because it does make it easier for other people too. Yeah. Lisa, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Lisa. Lisa. I'm at the very wit's end. This patient was so terrified at the prospect of having a tooth pulled that the dentist offered him a shot of whiskey. Do you feel any braver now? Do I feel any braver, brother? I'd like to see somebody mess around with my teeth now. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Search AA Grapevine in the App Store on your phone or find AA Grapevine on Instagram and YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, search online for Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. That was freaking amazing. <laughs> Thank you.
The following is a frank conversation about sexual abuse and how practicing AA's 12 steps can help one heal. It may be disturbing for some listeners. And I think that's where, like in step nine, when it talks about it's easier to go to a friend than to an yes. enemy when it's talking about making amends. And then it follows it up with, but we find them much more beneficial. Right. Like I grew the most, not just from like being willing to make amends to people who I was still upset with, but also in being willing to hear them out as well. Tina would always say to me, like, a heart that beats in one direction can't survive. So as much as I want people to be willing to, to hear my amends, so I should be willing to hear them out as well. The way that I'm gratified with that experience is there's nothing else like it in this program. A lot of us say that, you know, if you don't do a fourth, you'll drink a fifth. <laughs> You know, and, and the importance of like a personal inventory, that's step four. But, but I would go as so far as to say that, like, I've seen a lot of people return to drinking over unmade amends, yep. like amends that they're scared yes. to face. Yeah. And so I always have to ask myself, like, am I willing to face people that scare yep. me? Because like this gentleman who I still see, I mean, we we still we share a home group today. Um, no one terrified me more than him because of the amount of power that I allowed him to take from me for so long, not just in like the act, like what happened, but for years after that, um, when I would avoid meetings and I would avoid events and I would rob myself of having other experiences because I was afraid to face him. And then just for like God to see fit that he gets to be the vessel through which I am able to forgive all these perpetrators from when I was a literal child and I was taken advantage yep. of, you know, and what a beautiful and profound thing that is that like God thinks so much of me that he wants me to have that experience so that I can give the hope to other women Absolutely. who don't think that they're able to ever let go of their what what made them a victim, yep. you know. And, and it's the thing, I don't know for men, but it's the thing that I think most women come in with and they think they can never grow past this. They think they can mm -hmm. never be free from it and and the holding on to the anger of I was molested I was I was sexually abused I was right that that it's a prison it's mm -hmm. a prison how uh what percentage of women are molested or abused in some way would you think I have not had a single sponsee that doesn't have some kind of either physical abuse or sexual abuse most of in sexual most of the women that i've sponsored over the years mm -hmm. have been molested in some kind of way it's very yeah. prevalent i think in the world but certainly in alcoholics anonymous and this is like the hill in aa that i will die on is um when people say what was your part in association with the fourth column of step four but it never says that in our literature what it says is Referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though the situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. What mistakes did you make? And so, like, I'm asking myself, what mistakes did I make in the relationship? I, it, I had no part in my dad abusing me. You know, there's nothing that at three years old I can do that constitutes my father abusing me. Right. But when I was 15 years old and he would ground me and I would tell him that he was a piece of 
and I would disrespect him and I would sneak out of the house and I'd steal his money and all these other things that I did independent of the abuse that I endured as a child. Like I made mistakes in that relationship. And that's the importance of setting aside everything in column two and focusing solely on what mistakes did I make. Some people argue that rape, molestation, sexual assault, that these things go on a sex inventory. But the way that I was taught in my sponsorship line is that belongs on the resentment inventory. Absolutely. And when I'm looking at my mistakes, I'm not looking at like what mistakes did I make that led to me getting raped? What I'm looking at is what mistakes did I make going forward from that moment? So like, I didn't do anything that constituted me being raped. But after that happened, I made every single man in my life pay for what this one guy did. And that was the mistake was treating every guy as if he was my rapist. That's right. That's where like sexual assault and really abuse of any sort is so delicate when you're dealing with an inventory. Because you can't, you don't want to be blaming the victim. No. And that's what saying something like, what was your part? Yeah. Thank you, Sloan. And the book never uses part. <laughs> never. Right. And, and I think of that as my harm, not my part. I think of it as the harm that I did in this situation, right? And, and what almost always, not always, but almost always going through it, what I come to with people is the love, the connection, the sense of safety and belonging that I seek, I cut myself off from in the way that I behave as a result mm-hmm. of that thing happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The person that and with, or usually with everybody else. Yeah. 